And let me invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Timothy. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on 1177, 1177, Paul's letter to Timothy as he cares for the Ephesian church. We do have a new sound system, so if you get a little feedback or I sound a little weird, our guys are still working on that. It's all brand new for us, so uh, bear with us. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now, 1 Timothy, you'll remember, I hope, uh, is written by Paul to his spiritual son, Timothy. Paul had led Timothy's mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, to faith during his first missionary journey, and these godly women had then discipled their covenant child, Timothy. And when Paul returned to their city, Lystra, the church there put Timothy forward as a young man gifted for ministry. As we will read later, Timothy was taken by Paul and ordained. Hands were laid on Timothy and his calling was recognized and authenticated. All they understood... As Timothy travels with Paul, they understandably became very close, these two men. Paul begins the letter actually in verse 2 by calling Timothy his true child in the faith. And it really makes sense, doesn't it? Paul, as far as we can tell, was never married, and Timothy's father was not a believer. And so as God has done for centuries, and he's done this in our church, a spiritual family is formed between these two men. They find themselves filling roles in one another's lives. And you do remember, don't you, Jesus' promise that this would happen. On at least two occasions, the Gospels give us this promise, that whoever loses family for the Gospel's sake or for Christ's sake will receive brothers and sisters both in this life and the next. In Timothy, Paul was realizing those promises of Jesus. Now, on several occasions, Paul would start a church in a town, and then when he was forced to flee, he would leave or send pastors, we might call them, to these places to build on the foundation he had laid. Timothy and Titus were probably his most trusted men for this work. Although they may not have been pastors in the exact way we mean that today, Their role is, I think, best described with that word. They would have thought of themselves as elders. In fact, the apostles called themselves elders. But unlike the other elders of the church, Timothy and Titus were not local men called out by the congregation, but were rather men trained and sent to a local congregation. And so since the beginning, the Church of Jesus has rightly called these letters the pastoral epistles. First Timothy then is a pastoral letter. Paul is instructing and validating Timothy's calling to stay in Ephesus and work with the church there. As we noted last time, Ephesus was the capital of Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today. It was a massively important city. The church that was born out of it uh, came out in a very remarkable part of Paul's ministry. Paul remained in Ephesus for three years, and the book of Acts tells us that the miracles performed by Paul there 
were extraordinary even for the apostolic age. But here is the, I think, real shocker. Despite being founded in this incredibly powerful way, the church was already drifting. Tragically, some of the elders of the church were leading people astray, corrupting the foundation that Paul had laid. Timothy has been called to go back, above all else, to go back and guard the apostolic foundation. And ever since then, faithful pastors, faithful pastors, know this to be their chief calling. Guard the deposit. Hold fast to the teaching. Build only on the apostolic foundation. Paul puts it so strikingly in 1 Timothy 4.16, where he tells Timothy, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. In obedience to that command, I'll ask you to stand as we give close attention to the reading of God's worth. This will be 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. As I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This is God's word. Let's now ask his blessing upon it. Father, we do want to obey the commandment of the apostle that we should give ourselves to the teaching, reading, and preaching of your word, that in that act there is life for us, change and growth. And so we do present ourselves to you this morning that you would instruct us out of your word. And so we pray, speak to us through your word, strengthen each one to follow Christ, rebuke and correct, encourage and inspire in all the ways that you know best. We give ourselves to you. Now bless us and strengthen us through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Last time uh, we met and looked at 1 Timothy, I asked you mentally at least to underline a word in the end of verse 3. The last word in the verse 3 is literally the word heterodoxy or different doctrine. Hetero, as you probably know, means other, as in heterosexual, or you might think of the word heresy, which has come to mean different teaching about the core elements of the faith. Timothy has many responsibilities in Ephesus, as we'll see, but none is more pressing than this. He is to adamantly oppose heterodoxy. And that, I think, is a problem for many people, maybe even for us. You see, we've been taught, you've been taught your whole life, I've been taught my whole life, uh, by our culture, that anyone who opposes false teaching is cruel, 
immature and hypocritical. I can't tell you how many times I've watched a show or a movie and heard this little piece of American orthodoxy. Maybe you've noticed this as well. Isn't it almost always the case that the people in your shows, your plays, your movies, the people who are most serious about their faith are likewise always the biggest hypocrites? They're almost always self-righteous, small-minded, and horribly insensitive to the needs of others. As some of you don't watch a lot of shows or television, but when we do, we almost always watch shows produced in Britain and aired on PBS. In recent years, two great detective series have been done. Uh, both are based on books, and both feature pastors, well, a priest and a pastor, as brilliant sleuths. In both cases, the producers have gone out of their way to make it clear that these hero pastors are not Orthodox believers, even though the books, which are the basis for these shows, say the opposite. But it isn't just that. They always go further. When someone, whenever someone enters the show as a strident believer, they are immediately demonized as small-minded. As you play, see this play out year after year, show after show, play after play, it becomes an undeniable pattern. Our culture simply cannot imagine a hero being truly religious. And so they rewrite history and fiction to, pay, to make people more secular. If you know a little history, you know this is an old and uh, effective tactic, a way of marginalizing undesirables. In the not-so-distant past, for example, black actors were always represented in film as uneducated or in supportive or even servant roles. Jews were often portrayed as greedy or devious. The, this picture was painted again and again until no other image seemed possible. And that's what we're up against this morning. We've been told our whole lives that a man or woman who calls false teaching heresy is small-minded, insecure, and hypocritical. And yes, sometimes that is true. I've known people like that, and I'm sure you have too. But our lives and our history are also brimming full with men and women of robust faith who were kind, wise, and genuine. As I look back over my own life, more often than not, I see the very opposite of what my culture tells me. It has been the fully, humbly committed Christian that has left the biggest impact on me in the end. The truth lovers have also been the best people lovers. Sound faith has led to faithful living. And that is the topic of our text today. In today's passage, bad doctrine, bad foundations, emerge directly into sinful and unproductive living. Look with me then at the rottenness and the barrenness of this false, dead theology. So first of all, notice with me that this false faith, this heterodoxy, this other teaching is rotten at the foundation, at the roots. Rather than devoting themselves to the Old Testament scriptures or to the foundational teachings of the apostles, what we call today the New Testament, these elders, these false teachers, 
were devoted to what Paul here calls myths and genealogies. Look at the end of verse 3. Remain at Ephesus, Paul says, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. The letter of 1 Timothy ends with an admonition. O Timothy, Paul writes, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And Paul says the same thing to Titus, who is in a whole different place. He's on an island, the island of Crete, as a pastor. And he tells Titus to rebuke those who are devoted to Jewish myths. Whether we take the time to uncover it or not, the fact is that every movement has a foundation. Every movement, secular or sacred, has teachings that motivate and direct the movement. Every pastor or priest or guru has a set of scriptures, teachings, that form the foundation of their faith and practice. Even modern people, secular people, have scriptures, books by Freud, Marx, and Kant, even when they're not actually read, are still canonical in today's universities and secular movements. And for the public at large, our neighbors, the teachings of Oprah are endemic, even among those who have not actually watched her show or participated in her media empire. Now, the church in Ephesus was no exception to this rule. It had foundations. The church in that city was founded on the three-year ministry of Paul, the apostle. Acts tells us that it was a ministry marked by continual preaching and unusual miraculous power. In other words, Paul laid the foundation in the Old Testament through preaching, and therein to verify his New Testament teaching he performed amazing miracles. So you see, the Ephesian church was rooted, founded in Scripture, both a careful reading of the Old Testament and an authoritative, miracle-laden declaration of the gospel in Jesus the Messiah. Now these elders, turned false teachers, were determined to lay a new foundation, to undermine what Paul had done in Ephesus under the authority of Christ. They were setting up a new and thoroughly rotten foundation, what Paul calls here myths and genealogies. Instead of building on scripture as Paul had taught them, they had become enamored with various authors in vogue among the Jews. Since most of the early believers were Jewish, it's not surprising that they would have been attracted to these popular writers and thinkers. Although I can't tell you exactly who these writers were, no one knows for sure, we do have lots of evidence of this kind of work going on at that very time. For example, works like the Book of Jubilees or the Gnostic Jewish writer Philo are perfect fits for what Paul describes here. I won't go into the details. You may not be interested in that. You can look it up later. But the th key thing to know is that these writings emphasized the things not explained in the Bible. 
These authors were seeking to help God out, as it were, by offering new and exciting materials, by filling in the gaps in the Bible stories with their own writings. What emerges from this period is incredibly fanciful interpretations and elaborate genealogies intended to satisfy curiosity and promote endless speculation. Now, notice that what Paul says about this new foundation. Paul here says that all of these, all this new stuff you're bringing into the church, they are myths. He calls them myths. This was a word the Ephesians were very familiar with. Myths were common among the Gentiles in those days. Maybe you've heard the name uh, Romulus and Remus, twin brothers who supposedly founded the city of Rome on the spot where a she-wolf nursed them. This is the myth of Rome. Paul here is saying that these Jewish stories are no better. They are not scripture. Rather, they belong to the category of myth, fable, fiction. Now, do you see why I'm calling this the rotten foundations? The false elders were building their new spirituality on fashionable follies, useless speculation, popular stories. The false teachers have left the sure foundation of the apostle for speculation. Now, through Timothy's pastoral ministry, Paul is calling the Ephesians back to the foundation he laid during his three-year ministry there. As an apostle, Paul had a unique calling to lay the foundation of Christ's church. Paul actually made this point explicitly in his letter to this very church, in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2. Paul tells this church that they are the household of God, and then he says, this is chapter 2, verse 20 of Ephesians, that the church is a house built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. As an apostle, Paul had a unique calling directly from the risen Christ to lay the foundation of the church. No one, no one, not even a pope, has the right or authority to change the foundation. This was the big difference between Paul and Timothy and between Paul and the elders in Ephesus. They were all elders. The apostles called themselves elders. That was a basic term to designate a man who had authority in the church. However, men like Paul and Peter were also apostles, men who had seen the risen Christ and had been ordained and appointed directly by the risen Lord. Maybe we can think of it this way. Timothy had his ordination from elders and others from Paul. I have my ordination, the laying on of hands from other pastors and elder, but Paul received his ordination directly from the hands of the risen Christ. To confirm this foundational authority, God granted the apostles unusual miraculous powers. That's why we don't see those powers today, because we don't have apostles building the foundation of the church. We do see miracles, we do, but we don't see the kind of miracles we saw with the apostles where Peter could walk down a street and everyone laying sick on the side of the street was healed. Such a man, if there was one today, could go to CHOP, 
could go to where the children there have cancer and simply walk down the aisle of that ward and heal every single person. No one has that kind of healing power today. Why? Because God's not active? No, of course God is active. These men were granted unusual, miraculous powers because they had a calling from the Lord to lay the foundation of the Christian church. Battling errors then became a big issue as Paul and the other apostles left their ministry now to other men, men like Timothy and Titus. And as as the apostles begin to fade from the scene, as they go into prison or are killed, they all want to pass on to these men faithful teaching and call those men to hold fast to the truth. The apostles had this foundational authority, and Peter speaks of it very powerfully in a way that reminds us of our passage this morning. In 2 Peter 1, verse 16, Peter writes, For we, I think he means there the apostles, did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. But maybe the best place to see this is in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians that we read earlier in chapter 3. Listen again to what Paul said there. According to the grace of God given to me, Paul writes, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. You and I do not have the right to touch the foundation, to move even one stone. We can only seek to build faithfully upon the gospel. So let me ask, is that what you are doing with your time and influence? What foundations are you building on? At home, at work, at church? Can you really say that you are rooting people in the scriptures Or are you, if you're being honest, simply teaching people to be many versions of yourself? Are you simply reinforcing your own myths and history, passing down your prejudices, your theological hobby horses, your preferences? Do your kids know why you believe what you believe? For those of us who are elders and pastors here this morning, these questions are only further underlined as we await our judgment interview with God before his throne. Pastors and elders will not only face the same day of revelation as all other Christians, but James warns us of a second reckoning for elders. On that day, the great question will be for us, on what foundation have I built? As Paul tells the Corinthians in that passage, chapter 3, Fire and the day of judgment will reveal it. Was it gold? Was it silver? Or were we like the foolish fairy tale pigs building homes of straw? Time like fire will reveal the nature of our work. But these elders, their foundations were rotten. And so today their theology is forgotten. Like a dandelion, it is blown away. The foundations are utterly rotten. Since the foundations are rotten, second of all, we shouldn't be surprised then that this new theology is also barren. 
There's no fruit on the tree, so to speak. See how Paul puts it in verse 4. There Paul notes that this new theology is that, quote, which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. In contrast, the aim of our commandment or charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions. There's a dramatic contrast here, isn't there? The new teaching promotes speculation. People talk religion all day, but they never come to any kind of conclusion. They're never urged to repent or trust or change. It is a barren theology. And no wonder, because the elders have swapped scriptural preaching for myths and genealogies. J.C. Ryle once said that some preachers are like a painted fire, a painting of a fire. It looks good if the artist knows his work. It looks just like the real thing, but no matter how close you get, there's never any real warmth or light. These elders were painted fires. You walked away curious, maybe even stimulated, but never changed. In contrast, true Christian ministry is what Paul calls here stewardship. That word being there is not an accident. In putting it this way, don't miss what Paul is saying. It's really clever and poignant. Steward is a word Paul uses repeatedly to describe himself, his own ministry, and to encourage other elders and pastors in the church. So, for example, he says to Titus in that pastoral epistle, an overseer, Titus, an elder, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Paul is saying that these elders have left their role as steward of God's house and now promote speculation. I know steward is a word we don't use a lot anymore, so let me just draw your attention to it for a moment. A steward is someone who oversees a home or an estate on behalf of the owner. He is not the owner, but he has been given owner-like powers. However, he is never to think that he has the power of himself. He must give an account. And so you can see how it's a perfect picture of the office of elder and pastor. So do you see what Paul is doing here as he rebukes these false elders? They have swapped the foundations and now under rotten foundations, their stewardship is failing. Instead of faithful stewardship leading to love, they have created a flock full of speculation. Paul will later talk about people with itching ears, people who want to hear new things, who want to be entertained. These are elders and people in the church who are not interested in stewardship, but in an experience, a feeling. They want to be entertained, but they do not want to be changed. So what does faithful stewardship in the church look like? In a nutshell, the Bible's answer is that real stewardship in the church produces pure love in a good conscience. Look at the beautiful statement God has given us in verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience 
and a sincere faith. The word charge there in your Bible, it's actually the word for commandment. I have no idea why the ESV made it charge because they actually use it just a few verses before and they interpret it as commandment. But it is the word for command. And it really should be translated that way because as Jesus taught us, right, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. Or as Paul put it in both Romans and Galatians, the whole law is fulfilled in one word or one thought, love your neighbor as yourself. These false teachers want to be known, according to verse 7, as teachers of the law. But their teachings do not go where the law goes. The law of God leads to, it terminates in love for God and neighbor. That is why the most mature Christians you know are both great at the knowledge part of scripture and doctrine and yet have a deep love and impact on others. This is so important. When you meet a Christian, brothers and sisters, who is intensely theological, reads heavily, but does not love others well, don't mistake them for a mature believer. They are not. Why? Because biblically, Love is the wise thing that emerges in the life of the mature believer. Now, don't get me wrong. Knowledge is important, and reading theology is wonderful. As we've already seen, the foundations do matter. However, many Christians are dogmatic about ideas that they have not actually even begun to live out. Mature believers have gotten excited about the truth have believed it, digested it, and now it's coming out at their fingertips. Wisdom is, after all, knowing what you know. And so love is the manifestation of faith. It's love, then, that Paul has in mind when at the end of his life he writes his son Timothy and says in 2 Timothy, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness faith, love, and peace, along with those who, are call, who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. I love that verse because in it, Paul addresses our current definition of love and the Bible's definition. Youthful passions is what love means today in our society. But in scripture, love is faith and peace from a pure heart. The goal then of Timothy's ministry and stewardship is not speculation or entertainment or an experience for the congregation. His congregation is not supposed to remain forever in the dark, tantalized by but never growing, always learning but never coming to the truth. Rather, Timothy's stewardship is aimed to promote mature Christian living, best summed up in the biblical idea of love. This love is not our youthful desires, but the sacrificial otherness that 1 Corinthians so clearly lays out in chapter 13. Mature believers have a faith blossoming in love. This is the goal of our ministry. And so each week... These words, if you've noticed, appear on the front of your bulletin. Every bulletin, Colossians 1.28, 1 
Him we proclaim, there's the foundation, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And Paul goes on to say, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. There is a form of Christian ministry. There is a preacher who is just a painted fire. There are dads and moms who try to enforce Christian standards in the home, but who never evidence profound Christian maturity. The father thinks that he can spout theological truisms and fail to love his wife and still disciple his children. He is a painted fire. There are ministries, conferences, and books that will entertain, stimulate thought, but will never bring tears, no change, no fruit. Their foundations are rotten, and now the branch is barren. What will Jesus do with these stewards? He told us, didn't he? He tells a parable of a group of stewards. Each was given money to invest on behalf of the owner, representing God, of course. And Jesus then says the owner went away to a far country to receive a kingdom. Each steward invested the money. Some were more successful than others, but each had something to show their master on his return. But you will recall there was one faithless steward who buried the money. He did nothing with it. There was no growth, nothing on the branch. And what does Jesus say? He commands, cast the worthless steward into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now step back with me for a moment. We've seen the rotting foundation on which the false elders are seeking to build. Instead of the words of the prophets and apostles, they've immersed themselves in speculative teaching. And unsurprisingly, they have stopped being stewards and now they've become barren. Their fire, as we've said, is a painted fire only. When you turn the light out, the painted fire is exposed. It does not brighten or warm the room. But what about us? How does all this apply to us today? Well, there are many applications, many paths we could go down. We could point out, I could point out today, that false teaching is everywhere around us. It's hard not to think, for example, of the myths and fables in our society that capture people every day. Uh, Mormonism is based on the myth that Jesus magically appeared in North America. Many millions of people believe this myth and that he appeared to an illiterate farmer in New York and that that farmer was given magic glasses to read sacred tablets and that God told him to marry more than one woman. And millions of people believe that myth Uh, every day and give themselves to it. We could go on and on. People are drawn today, just as then, to myths. Or maybe we could be more self-critical and look at our own tradition for a moment. Reformed churches can fall into, if we're not careful, we can fall into T. Rex Christianity. You know the T. Rex, right? The dinosaur? Huge head, but two little bitty arms that aren't good for very much. So today there are those who do not mature into love. 
But in the middle of all this misinformation, myths and genealogies, unloving forms of Christianity taking hold in the church, all the danger, there is also good news. And I want to leave you with good news. Because Jesus is watching over his church, and he is with his church. Maybe nowhere is this more powerfully taught than in John 15, where Jesus says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. So don't be afraid of the false teaching. Don't be overly discouraged, brothers and sisters, when famous Christians apostatize. The vine cannot fail. His specialty is life out of death. He mastered that skill in his own person. So brothers and sisters, abide in him. So shall your foundation be always secure, your roots deep and your branches heavy with fruit. May God grant it to be that way here at Grace through the ministry of his servants. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that in this place and in our homes, there would be ministry done rooted deeply in the scriptures and in the scriptures alone. Father, we confess that we have no right to alter the foundation, but rather it is ours to build upon the work that you have given to us. So make us all in the place you've put us, each one, faithful to that foundation. And Father, we would ask as well for our church that we would see much fruit here, that we would turn from sin and turn to you, and that we would see the maturity of love in the lives of those here. Father, work in us and bring this about, we pray that Christ might be glorified in our presence and in our midst. And we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. Our final hymn this morning is hymn number 342. Christ is made the sure foundation. Hymn number 342. Please stand and let us sing in praise to our great Lord.